This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. And with this as the focus, I want to open our Bibles up to Job chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of Job, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that this book is centered around the suffering of a God-fearing man named Job. And it was back in the beginning of this book when we learned about the day when a fallen angel known as Satan, this fallen angel attacked Job's family, the fallen angel attacked Job's finances, and after he learned about the death of his children and the loss of his livestock, well, Satan returned to torture Job by striking his body with boils. Well, the news about Job traveled fast, and within no time at all, Job found himself surrounded by three friends, namely Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And while it's true that you know, they had come out to mourn with Job and to comfort him, well, it's also true that they had assumed that Job was being punished for certain sins. It's for this reason that Eliphaz, the Temanite, he spent the last two chapters implicitly accusing Job of doing something to invite the anger of God. Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Job, he's responding to the implied accusations of Eliphaz. But before we turn you know, our attention to Job's response here, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Job was a man who feared the Lord and who shunned evil. And so we already know that this satanic attack on the house of Job, it wasn't punishment. This wasn't God's way of punishing Job. No, instead, uh, this was a test of his faithfulness. And there are times when the Lord will test faithful believers uh, and, and use those tests as a way to grow us and give us the victory in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately for Job, he didn't yet have this perspective on this trial. And it's for this reason that he was really wrestling with what we call the problem of evil. Just to be clear, the problem of evil is typically presented with a loaded question. And the question typically goes like this. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And it's here in our text tonight where we find Job, he's actually... You know, presenting this problem as he's responding to the implied accusations of Eliphaz, and he's wondering why God is allowing him to suffer all of these things, knowing that he was a man who was upright, uh, a man who feared the Lord and who shunned evil. And so with all this in, in focus, let's turn our attention now back to the book of Job. Uh, and, and throughout this study, we're going to consider the problem of, uh, of evil. And so if you would look with me here at Job chapter 6, I want to begin reading there at verse 1, because here we learn that Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's responding to Eliphaz by admitting that his words had been too rash. And just to be clear, he's probably referring to the things that he had said back in chapter 3. I'll remind you, it was there in chapter 3 where Job mourned the day of his conception and he cursed the day of his birth. He was basically saying, I wish I'd never been born. 
And, and, and not only that, but he also entertained the philosophy of nihilism by declaring, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Wow. I mean, you know, he could have been like, you know, a, a, a lyric writer for The Cure or something like that. You know, Morsi, you know, and just, he was definitely depressed. And for good reason. He had suffered a great deal. These are the words of a man who was overwhelmed with grief. And after considering the counsel of Eliphaz, you know, Job agreed that his words maybe had been a bit rash. Now, just to be clear, that word rash found there at the end of verse 3, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of those who talk wildly. He's saying, yeah, maybe I did talk a little wildly there. A scholar named Spiros Zodiades, he also comments on the meaning of this Hebrew word by informing us that most translators render the word to indicate that Job's words were spoken rashly. And then he says in this sense, you know, the, this Hebrew word indicates ill-timed and irrational speech. Now, it's true that Job was admitting here that his words had been rash, and yet it's also true that he felt justified in those rash words. He felt justified in his rash response, especially in light of all of the things that he had just suffered. And I, and I like the way that the uh, scholars who created the Bible in basic English, they render verses 2 and 3 in this way. If only my passion might be measured and put into the scales against my trouble... For then its weight would be more than the sand of the seas. Because of this, my words have been uncontrolled. Because of everything that I've suffered, my words have been uncontrolled, and so I have reason here. Job was encouraging his friends to consider his rash response in light of everything that he had been through. And in order to put a a finer point here on on his pain and on his suffering here, Job describes the way that his spirit had been poisoned by the arrows of the Almighty. Notice again there in verse 4. Here again, Job declares, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. In other words, Job here is convinced that our almighty God was the one who struck his bodies with the boils that he was experiencing. And knowing that he was a man who had faithfully offered the proper sacrifices for his sins and and also for the sins of his children, well, I have no doubt that Job here is suffering the the, the physical pain of these boils. And and as he's suffering the, the physical pain of those boils, he's struggling with the emotional pain that comes from the question regarding the problem of evil. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? I kept up with my sacrifices. I shunned evil. I did my best to, to walk with the Lord. And, and, and yet, the arrows of God have now filled me. The poison is, is in my body. He's struggling with the problem of evil. And while the problem of evil is typically based on the question about why God passively allows bad things to happen to good people... Job seems to have been wondering why God was actively shooting arrows at him and filling his body with this poison. Now, he wasn't coming right out and accusing God of doing something evil, yet he was clearly wondering why God was forcing him to endure the evil that he was experiencing. In order to prove my point, let's consider the next complaint that Job presents here in our text tonight as he continues responding to the accusations of Eliphaz. 
you would look with me again here at Job chapter 6, we'll pick up at verse 5. Here Job goes on to ask, does the wild donkey bray when it has grass, or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? And the answer is no. No, there's not. Job says, my soul refuses to touch them. They are loathsome food to me. Amen. Job here is assuring his friends that there's most, certain, uh, most certainly a reason for his rash words. He's continuing to show his justification for the rash words that he had presented. And in order to make his case, Job appealed to the hungry donkey that brays when it can't find fresh grass. You know, the donkey that's wild out in the field, you know, is there a cause for the donkey to bray when there's plenty to eat? Well, of course not, but no fresh grass. There's reason for the donkey to cry out. He also pointed to the oxen that bellows when they have no food. And in light of these animals, you know, that, that have a, a reason to cry out when there is no food, Job was also certain that he himself had a just reason for crying out with his rash words. To further prove his point, Job refers to the complaints of the person who's served flavorless food. Think about it. You know, if you go to a, resta- a restaurant like, I mean, let's just choose one, Chewy's. And, uh, you know, or, or uh, I, I said Chewy's, but I meant Chili's. I, I, I feel really bad now. <laughs> but if you go to a restaurant and they serve you flavorless food, you have the right to complain. You have the right to complain. Now, whether you should complain about it or not is another story, you know, especially if, if you're worried that they're going to do something to your food if they send it back, right? And let's just say that I haven't been back to Kirby Lane since 2003. You know, a simple complaint about the flavor of the food resulted in a disgusting prank that came out from the kitchen, and I'm, I was just done. Anybody that wants, says, you know, you want to go to Kirby Lane? The answer is always from me, no, no, I do not, because there is no forgiveness in my heart for Kirby Lane. Clearly that cook at Kirby Lane never read the book of Job because according to Job, uh, we have the right to complain about loathsome food and that's all I did. Much like the customer who has cause to complain about unseasoned food, Job was assuring his friends that he had also caused, uh, he had a cause to complain and the reason why is because God was forcing him to endure the evil that had befallen him. He's not blaming God for doing something evil against him. I believe that he has the faith to realize that, you know, God has his plan and, and he's to some degree okay with that, but, but he also just wants to die. You know, he, he's in his mind, he's thinking that, you know, if God wants to do me a favor, then just kill me. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter six here. If you would look with me beginning at verse eight, here he declares, oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exult, he will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's complaining now because God had refused to grant his prayer request. And just to be clear, you know, he was asking the Lord to end his existence. And so before Eliphaz, you know, went off on his 
you know, all of his accusations. It was back, you know, in chapter three where Job was like, oh, I wish I'd never been born. And now here in chapter six, he's saying, I wish I could just die. Job was praying for God to crush him and cut him off from the land of the living. And the reason why was because, you know, according to Job here, the pains of death would bring greater comfort than the pain that he was enduring on that very day. I like the way that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English rendered these verses. They put it like this. If only I might have an answer to my prayer and God would give me my desire. If only he would be pleased to put an end to me and would let loose his hand so that I might be cut off, so that I would still have comfort and I would have joy in the pains of death. For I have not been false to the words of the Holy One. From this we can see that Job was a man who was in so much pain that he preferred death to one more day. He would rather die than to live just even one more day. And not only that, but he was also upset with the Lord for failing to answer his prayer request. And I have no doubt there are some here tonight who have experienced a similar level of grief as we wonder, why is God allowing us to continue suffering the trials and the troubles of this world? Why won't he answer my prayer? Why won't he heal? Why won't he provide in the way that I've asked? Why does God allow his faithful servants to suffer the attacks of the enemy? Why does he allow those who trust in him to endure the trials and the troubles of this world? Why does the Lord allow born-again believers to suffer the pain of persecution? Why doesn't he spare us from the difficulties that fill our minds with the desire to die? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And when they happen, why doesn't he save us from them? this sounds like the sort of questions that you've been wrestling with and it's important for us to remember that you know the the question of evil or the problem of evil is based on a loaded question that has many many misconceptions too many to go into tonight but one example is listen when we ask why does God allow bad things to happen why does God allow bad things to happen to good people well number one we're assuming that we're the good people that we're talking about We might change the question to why does God allow bad things to happen to eh, people? You know, people who sometimes do the right thing and a lot of times don't. Why why does God allow bad things to happen to Christians who still stumble back into sin? Uh, Maybe that would be a better question to ask. But then we're also assuming that we have the right perspective on the situation. For example, you know, when I was a kid, my dad would treat my scrapes and my cuts. You know, I'd go out, you know, playing around with, with friends and come back with cuts and, and scrapes. And, you know, my dad would pull, pull out something that was called monkey blood. Anybody here familiar with monkey blood? Yeah. It's a disinfectant. And, and it stung. I mean, it burnt. And the pain was almost unbearable. Like, like I, even with, with like a, a large cut, I would be like, I don't know if I want to tell my dad about this. You know, I'd, I think I'd rather get gangrene right now. But the disinfectant was cleansing the wound of, of, of the bacteria. Was that pain evil? Or was that good pain? What Charlie Brown might call good grief, right? What about exercise? You know, those who spend their time exercising experience pain in the process. 
And yet, as the saying goes, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body. Is the pain of exercise an evil thing? It's pain. Is all pain evil? The fact is, there is some pain that is good. It's why God gave us nerves. You know, we, we, we need to know when something's going wrong, or we need to know, you know, when we've put our hand on the hot stove. There is pain that is good. Not all pain is bad, and with that being the case, we'd all do well to realize that God might be using the pain that we're enduring to accomplish his perfect will. And the very situation that we're calling bad, you know, when we say, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, the very thing that you're calling bad, how do you know it's bad? Sometimes it's a no-brainer. Sometimes it's clearly biblical that this is an evil thing, right? Because the Bible says that's evil. But a lot of the times we're calling things that are bad just because we don't like what's happening. We don't like the thing happening to us. Therefore, it's bad. Oh, in all of your years of knowledge, you know what's good and bad for you, huh? The very situation that we call bad might actually be a necessary disinfectant, spiritually speaking. And the Lord might be like the loving father who's coming along and cleaning out the bacteria from the wound. And is it painful? Yes. But is it bad? No. It might be the spiritual exercise that we need so that we might be strengthened as we go through the pain. It might be the Lord's way of revealing his grace to the people around us. Who knows but that the suffering that you're experiencing today is God's way of saving someone else from, from everlasting hell. I like the way that Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us, but life in you. Christian, listen, the Lord is allowing those who trust in him to suffer the trials and the troubles of this world so that the everlasting life of Jesus Christ might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that when people see the suffering that we're going through as, as we continue walking by faith with Jesus, they might see that and, and want to know more about this Jesus Christ that we, that we submit to. The Lord just might be using our pain and our suffering to reveal his gracious gift of forgiveness to those who don't yet believe. And if, if we're the reason that they end up coming to Christ because they saw us suffering, was it worth it? If a little bit of our suffering here in this world results in their eternal salvation, was it worth it? Was it a bad thing? Or was it a good thing? What would you suffer for the salvation of just one person? Paul was ready to give up his own salvation if all of his kinsmen could be saved. I don't know that I love anybody that much. To give up everlasting salvation so that someone else could be saved, that's, that's incredible love. How much are we willing to suffer for the sake of somebody else's salvation? 
And if the Lord is in fact using our trials and troubles to lead others to him, how can we say it's a bad thing? Be careful when you think you have the right perspective on everything happening in your life. The very thing that you might be complaining about might be the very thing that the Lord is using for the good of someone else. So let's be humble and recognize that I don't think we have the sense to know how to even ask the the question about evil. With all this in mind, I believe that we would all do well to receive the strength to stand as we begin to realize that the, the Lord truly does have a good reason for the pain and the suffering that he allows. Does that make the pain and the suffering easy to, to endure? No. It's still pain and suffering, and nobody wants that. But at least we can rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing. Amen. And he knows what he's doing better than we understand it. So can't we just trust in him? Can't we just simply say with all certainty that God works all things together for the good of those who love him? At the same time, it's also important to realize that there is a time to weep with those who weep. And with this in mind, I want to consider the complaint that Job presents here in our text tonight. If you would look with me again here at Job chapter 6. I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 11. Here Job asks, what strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me? And is success driven from me? To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's expressing his feelings of hopelessness. He's saying, hey, I I have no strength because I have no hope. And while Job was suffering the same sort of despair experienced by those who endure chronic illness, you know, people who suffer chronic illnesses, you know, they, they come to a place where they just feel like there's no more hope. There's, it's all hopeless. And that's where Job was at here. And, and his despair, it was compounded by the fact that the support that he was hoping to receive from his friends had soon turned into a time of accusation as Eliphaz presented his unfounded assumptions about what was happening in Job's life. That's for this reason that Job encouraged them them to realize that the friends of an afflicted man should show him kindness, and, and yes, even if he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He's saying, even if I am doing all the things that you claim that I'm doing, shouldn't you still show me some kindness in, in, the, in, in this time of trouble? In order to be fair to the friends of Job, now it's important to, to remember that you know, they wept with him when they first saw him. When they first showed up on the scene, they wept with him. And not only that, I'll remind you, they sat with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. And so it would be incorrect for us to conclude that these men had failed to show Job support. And in similar fashion, listen, we too should show our support for those who are suffering and struggling with the trials and the troubles of this world. I'll remind you, It's in Romans chapter 12. There Paul encourages every Christian to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When we come across those who are rejoicing, if you're sad that day, just rejoice with them. If you come across someone who's weeping, then even if it's the best day of your life, weep with them. And in light of this, listen, there are times when the best thing that we can do 
you know, for those who feel hopeless is to simply weep with them. In, in that moment of hopelessness, you know, the, chances are the last thing they want to hear is God, you know, works all things together for the good of those who love him, right? They probably just need someone to just sit there and weep with them. And with this, I want to remind you that when one member of our church is suffering, the whole church is suffering. It's like when you have one part of your body that's, that, that's feeling pain. It's not like your mind is like, well, that's my knee. You know, that's, I don't have pain over here, so I'm fine, right? Just because I have pain in my knee doesn't, doesn't mean I have pain in my wrist, and because I don't have pain in my wrist, then there's no pain, right? Wrong. If, if a part of your body is in pain, then your whole body feels that pain. I like the way that Paul explains this, the, the spiritual aspect of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there, there he declares, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In other words, you know, when one Christian here at our church is suffering, then their suffering impacts the entire church because they're part of the entire church. Therefore, we would do well to take care of those who are suffering lest they begin to believe that there is no hope in the midst of a fellowship you know, where we have hope in Jesus Christ. One way that we accomplish this here at Calvary South Austin is through the hospitality ministry. We have a hospitality ministry care calendar and whenever someone's sick, whenever somebody's bedridden, they can sign up on the, on the care calendar and people at the church you know, can then, uh, as they sign up, then they can bring meals to that person's house so that that person can, can rest and recover as they receive the meals that they need. In this way, we're able to encourage those who are ill as we help them to experience the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Just showing up to somebody's house with, with some food for the family. Yeah, you're delivering food. Hopefully it's not from Kirby Lane. But, uh, but it's not just food. I mean, it's hope. And, and it's received in that way that, man, I've got a church that cares for me. And, and we should all be involved in this because, listen, at some point in time, we're going to be the bedridden one. We're going to be the one that's signing up on the care calendar. And so when we're healthy, we ought to do our part to come alongside of those who are bedridden. Not only that, but listen, the, the Christian community is supposed to be a place of spiritual support as we build one another up and as we encourage one another. And as a matter of fact, the Bible is actually filled with one another verses that I don't even have time to cover tonight. But we are called to encourage those who are struggling and, and, and feeling hopeless. For example, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There we're, we're called to care for one another. In Galatians chapter 6, we're encouraged to carry each other's burdens. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're directed to patiently bear with one another in love. In, in the same chapter, we're encouraged to be kind and compassionate to one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're called to encourage each other. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're directed to build each other up. In James chapter 5, we're instructed to pray for those who are sick. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're encouraged to offer hospitality to one another and without grumbling. And listen, this is just a scratch on the surface of all of the one another passages that we find just in the New Testament epistles alone. Without debate, we've been called to exist within a Christian community, and we've been called to do so as we actively uh, are involved in one another's lives, encouraging one another, and especially when a member of the body is suffering. And so with this as the, the goal here, we should learn to weep with those who weep. And we should learn how to support those who are struggling as we build up one another. At the same time, we should also learn to lighten up a bit when the people who are trying to support us get it wrong. In order to explain what I mean, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 15, here he declares, My brothers have dealt deceitfully, like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice, and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid." And here in these verses, we find Job, he's continuing to complain about the the counsel of his friend Eliphaz. And he even went as far as comparing his counsel to the despairing disappointment that's experienced by a thirsty traveler who searches for the stream only to to discover that there is no water. Now, now this isn't something that that we really struggle with because, I mean, we can just, you know, turn on a tap and, and get water out of it. And, you know, so this idea of traveling through a desert and in search for, you know, water for your animals and, and for yourself you know, that we don't really feel that pain. I do remember, you know, searching for Jolt Cola one one time and not finding any, but uh, that was several years ago. But listen, the, the, the idea here is that, you know, the friends of Job came to support and then there was no support. Notice again in verse 15, he, here again he declares, my brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook like the streams of the brooks that pass away. In light of this illustration, we can see here how Job was hoping that his friends would refresh his soul during this time of despair. And yet, after hearing the the first bit of counsel from Eliphaz, Job's soul was just as parched as a thirsty man standing at a dried up stream. And it's for this reason that he goes on to accuse his friends of dealing deceptively by promising their support only then to deliver uh, words of criticism. Now, as we consider the way that Job responded to the counsel of Eliphaz, uh, we should take a moment to realize that there are going to be times when our friends make similar mistakes. They come alongside us in our time of trouble, and they, they try to show their support for us. And as they do, well, we quickly realize that they don't have a clue uh, about the right way to help us. I'm guessing we've already experienced it at some point in our lives. Christian, listen, whenever you find yourself in this sort of situation, someone comes along to show their support and and they make things worse, don't turn around and say, you've dealt deceptively with me. You know, that's that's probably not the best response. When we find ourselves in this sort of situation, it might help us to remember that love believes all things. Love believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean that love believes things that we know to be lies. 
but, but rather it's, it's to communicate that, that love believes the best about people, right? Love, love believes the best about these people who come to try to help us, even if the way they're going about it might be wrong. Listen, rather than accusing our friends who try to help us of being deceivers like streams without water, we would do well to remember that they're not trying to hurt us. You know, a lot of times there's conflict in the church because we've, we've assumed the worst about the other person. We've assumed that they're trying to hurt us rather than trying to help us when I would say that on average the person was trying to help, though it ended up hurting so we do well to remember that, you know, the people here at our church, they're not trying to hurt us. No, instead they're trying to help. But there's going to be times when our brothers and sisters in Christ, they just get it wrong. And I think that we should be gracious and patient with them, even though we're the ones dealing with trials and troubles and they seem to be making things worse. Listen, we, just, we still have to have a proper perspective in realizing that we're all going to get it wrong. Will there be times when their counsel is based on a misconception? Of course. Will there be times when they might even jump to the wrong conclusions about our situation? No doubt about it. And yet, this doesn't give us the right to treat them in an, unlo- in an unloving way by making false accusations against them. And so if their counsel is less than correct and it's hurt your feelings, then listen, I just encourage you to simply remember that at least they're just trying to help. You know, at least receive the love in that sense that they went out of their way to try to help you, though they were clueless and didn't know what they were talking about. But that's okay, because listen, we're all going to get it wrong. From time to time, we're all going to get it wrong. But if we just have the right heart about it, on both sides of the coin, well, then we can, you know, at least receive it in the heart that it was delivered, though it wasn't the thing that we ordered, so to speak. With this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Job then continued to defend himself against the false accusations that were implied by Eliphaz. And so if you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 22. Here Job asks, did I ever say bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede, my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job, he's challenging the unfounded accusations of Eliphaz. And he defended his integrity by presenting them with a series of questions, each of which were designed to demonstrate his moral integrity as well as his spiritual commitment to the Lord. And so after all these questions are presented, he basically just says, you know, hey, I'm not going to lie to you. Can you show me, is there any injustice on my tongue? Is there any lie that you can prove that I'm saying? He challenges them here to produce one shred of evidence that he was guilty of wrongdoing. And I'll remind you here, it was back in chapters 4 and 5 where Eliphaz, he implicitly imputed many sins to Job. He didn't come right out and accuse him, but there was a whole lot of implied accusations in everything that Eliphaz had said. 
And now here in our text tonight, we find Job, he's addressing those accusations and he's doing this by inviting them to produce the evidence of his guilt. He didn't turn around and say, you're wrong, you know, and you're a jerk and you're, he, he didn't go down that road. He, he used the, the method of saying, prove it. You've made your accusations, produce the evidence. Now, I don't like the way that Job accused his friends of deception simply because, you know, Eliphaz got it wrong in his counsel. But I do like the way that Job is inviting them to produce the proof of his guilt. And if they can produce the proof, then he'll be silent. With all this in mind, but listen, before we jump to the wrong conclusions about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should take a moment to examine the evidence of what we think might be wrong with them. You know, it's easy for us to think that we know what's going on in the mind of somebody else. You know, somebody says something to us and we take it wrong and, and we could even get into an argument about it only to discover that what they were intending to communicate was something that's very different from what we heard. And next thing you know, we spent three hours arguing about nothing. I don't think any married couples here have ever experienced that. But... Uh, but yeah, a lot of times we end up getting into arguments only to find out at the very end of it that we were in agreement the whole time. We just didn't understand what the other person was saying. And there are times when we can think that they've done something wrong, that they've, done, that they've, they've sinned against us or something along those lines, and yet we really don't have any evidence except for what we think they were thinking. Now listen, I don't even know what I'm thinking half the time let alone what you're thinking. I have no clue what you're thinking. And you have to tell me what you're thinking. I can't read minds. And neither can you. You don't know what I'm thinking. I'm still thinking about Kirby Lane. But, but anyway, so... And yet, how quick are we to accuse people or assume the worst about people because we think we know what's going on in their mind. Yeah, we're all insane. That's really what it boils down to. And because we think we know what's going on in somebody else's mind, it's easy for us to start throwing around the accusations of what we think they meant by what they said. And, and, then, and, and then we run off to you know, the rumor mill to, to go and spread that around. Listen, before we start throwing accusations around about people and what we think they meant by what they said and these sorts of things, we should take a moment to remember that you know, people are innocent until they're proven guilty. And you thinking you know what's happening in their mind is not proof. No matter how, how certain you are of it, you thinking that you know what's happening in somebody else's mind is not proof of guilt. And, and yet, how many accusations are being spread around just because somebody thinks they know what somebody else was thinking when they formulated a sentence that didn't make sense? Sadly, we live in a day and an age when accusations are easily made and, and without any eyewitness support and guilt is impugned without a single shred of evidence. And what's even worse is that relationships end up being destroyed and churches end up being divided by talebearers who didn't really know what they were talking about and yet had no problem running off at the mouth. That being the case, we'd all do well to ask for the evidence 
before we engage in the injustice of spreading false accusations that somebody presented to us. You know, if somebody comes to you and presents you with an accusation against somebody else, it might all be made up in their mind too. And no matter how much you trust them, it might just be delusion in their own mind. And if you turn around and then begin to spread that information, where's the evidence? If somebody comes to you and makes an accusation against somebody else, just tell them, show me the evidence. Show me the evidence, and then we can go talk to that person about it. How about that? Sadly, too many Christians are tale-bearers that are quick to spread information without even confirming the, the evidence that supports it, right? And, and with that, I want to consider something that King Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 26. It's there where he declares, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a tailbearer are like tasty trifles and they go down into the inmost body. Christian, listen, if there are no tailbearers in this church, then there will be no strife. Isn't that incredible? Now we can have a strife-free church. All we have to do is not spread rumors. And I encourage every Christian to realize that the tailbearer who spreads unfounded accusations is guilty of destroying people's lives with ungodly gossip. And so if, if you don't have evidence to make the accusation, then it's best to just remain silent. If you don't have proof that the accusation is true, then you don't have any ground to stand on to spread that rumor. And so we ought to Keep that information to ourselves, And the person who comes with the, with the tail to bear, ask them to produce the evidence of the accusation. Otherwise, you can't receive it. And if you do receive it, you ought to go talk to the person that the accusation is being made about. See what their point of view is. When we hear one side of the story, it's easy to believe that person until we hear the other side of the story. And then all of a sudden we discover that there's oftentimes two sides to the same story. At the same time, I also encourage you to realize that there will be times when the Lord allows us to suffer the evil of false accusations. No doubt false accusations are evil. And there are times when God allows us to suffer the false accusations of those who want to destroy our lives. And knowing that there isn't much we can do about that, I encourage you to remember that the Lord is using every trial. He's using every trouble and tribulation to perfect us according to his plan. And, and if you're wrestling with the questions of why God is allowing bad things to happen to you tonight, because you've got, you've got these people who are making up all these lies about you, well, I encourage you to remember in closing what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. Here he declares this. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
Christian, listen, if you're struggling with hopelessness tonight because you have people making false accusations against you and they're, and they're spreading it online and they're spreading it to your friends and family and there's, there's nothing you can do to stop it, listen, it, it, rather than coming to this place of hopelessness and, and, and wondering why God is allowing this to happen to you, listen, remember that God uses every tribulation to produce perseverance in our lives. Because from that perseverance comes Christian character. And from that Christian character springs forth hope. Hope in knowing that we are becoming more and more like Jesus every day. And so if God is allowing you to suffer the trials of this life, then I encourage you, find your hope in the fact that this is part of God's good plan to perfect us. And in this we can take courage as the Lord helps us to become more and more like Christ Jesus. Let's pray.